Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current, but not for too much longer, PA student. I'm your host, PAK, and today's episode, I'm going to dive into just a little bit of the rotation that I just finished, which was family medicine, Um, and then I'm going to do a little bit of panic studying about... Uh, anemia of chronic disease versus iron deficiency anemia, because this was something that came out of all of the CBCs that we would get on everybody in my family medicine practice. And I realized that I had no clue um, how to figure out if somebody's decreased hemoglobin was because they have a, like an active bleed or they have... Uh, like underlying kidney issues. Um, I just, I couldn't tell. And so I realized that I needed to remind myself on how to read uh, a CBC a little bit better um, and figure out uh, what those indices meant. So um, we're going to do that today. Just those two things. So let's do it. So for people like me who weren't quite sure what family medicine actually meant, um, one of my faculty kind of put it a little bit crassly, but totally correctly, that essentially it's sick old people and then occasionally some teenagers and kids. But generally speaking, we, we I saw a lot of sick old people. And I guess you could more maybe correctly term that like from the internal medicine side of things. But our population is getting older and people are getting sicker, younger. Um, and so the people that I saw kind of just at, on a general day-to-day basis in my general family practice, pack, pra- family practice clinic, these people had a ton of comorbidities. And when they would come in for their annual wellness exams, sometimes we would talk about 13 to 18 different chronic conditions that they were, have been struggling with. And so anyway, people are getting older and sicker. And in family medicine, I saw it absolutely every day. So I thought it might be helpful to go over some of the more frequent diagnoses that I saw. So I'm just going to read a quick list here of like the top, I don't know, 12 things that I saw just to just to give you, if you've never done family medicine, if you're curious about might you like it, um, or if you want to confirm that you don't want to talk about these things and you don't want to do family medicine, here's the things that I talked about uh, on my family medicine rotation. B- by far and away, the number top three, I guess, um, are as follows. Uh, The number one thing that people came in with were high blood pressure. They had hypertension for sure. Next up on the list was hyperlipidemia. So that's just kind of a general, uh, like all-inclusive category. This could have been it's usually high LDL cholesterol, but I saw a couple high triglycerides as well. And turns out we don't get too up in arms about super high triglycerides um, unless it's over like 500. In such a case, we get worried about it because it risks pancreatitis. Now, that was the que- that was like the pimp question that my attending asked me about, but 
I guess in real life, he really doesn't get too nervous about it. It's really the LDL that he looks at. Um, and that's because when we look at the ASCVD risk, which I've talked about on this podcast before, um, uh, the LDL and the HDL, as well as blood, blood pressure, are some of the markers that are used in calculating um, like the what's the percentage that this person in your office is going to have a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. So it's kind of a crazy, like, you know, glass ball, um, a crystal glass ball to look through um, to see about a heart attack or a stroke. But I mean, man, you plug those numbers in and you print that number out and it's like anything above seven to 10%. And like those people are getting a statin. Like that's, that's the classic teaching. So um, I use the ASCVD score a lot to guide my, oh my God, do I, do I put this person on a statin? Um, or do I maybe need to increase their statin from if they were on a low to like a more moderate dose or high dose even? So I really use the ASCVD score a lot to try to guide my statin um, recommendations. And I mean, there are a lot of people kind of rightfully so in my mind, like don't want more medication. And so you can kind of use the their high risk of ASCVD, which again, like anything over like 10% really should be um, on a statin according to the guidelines. Um, so you can kind of say, look, you know, you're sitting at like a 20% risk in the next decade of having a heart attack or a stroke. I'm telling you that the medical guidelines say, here's your statin. Now, if you don't want that, let's talk about how to lower some of these other numbers, meaning how do we get your blood pressure under better control? And so a lot of this can come down to diet and exercise. So if somebody doesn't want the statin, the conversation I would have with them and I was happy to have with them was, okay, let's talk about how we're going to lose some weight to get your blood pressure down. And let's talk about making some better food choices because yes, LDL and triglycerides, your cholesterol panel panel in general um, is absolutely affected by your genes, but some of it isn't. Um, and some of us have a lot more control over it than others. And yes, there are tests to do for that, but they're expensive. And so one of the easier ways to do it is to just like try to clean up your diet for three to six months and see how much your numbers move. Um, maybe you're one of the unfortunate people where you were, you ate great. You didn't eat a whole bunch of trans fat fried foods or carbs and sugars and your numbers didn't move that much. Well, sorry. Um, turns out you're just more affected by your genes than by what you're putting on your plate. But it's it's a good um, it's a good experiment for some of your patients to have. Who, if they don't want a statin, you've got another option for them. Uh, and of course, you you do document that you talked to the patient, you were offered the statin, they didn't want it, they they were educated to some of the ways that they could get around the statin. So you talked about that, and you're going to see them back in three to six months. Um, so anyway, that's kind of how. Um, I use the ASCVD score, which again, I've talked about in the, probably in the lipid disorder, maybe in the hypertension episode. So um, anyway, go back and listen to those because uh, these are like the bread and butter of uh, like family outpatient medicine. So that was a long roundabout. Going back, 
going back down my list, uh, far and away, the number one and number two things that people came in for into my family medicine clinic were hypertension and hyperlipidemia. Uh, next on the list was type 2 diabetes, and I definitely have an episode all on type 2 diabetes because that turned out to be one of my most favorite things to treat in the outpatient world, and I had an endocr- endocrinology rotation all about it. So I'm going to sh- give a shameless plug, but if your idea of how to treat type 2 diabetes consists of metformin and glipizide, you need to go back and... Um, listen to my podcast on what the endocrinologist wants you to know about type 2 diabetes because um, there's way better drugs out there. Uh, So that's that. So 1, 2, and 3, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes. Now, next on the list was um, for like formal diagnoses of things that I saw was uh, being overweight and obese. Uh, Those are legitimate codes that I would put in onto like a Medicare wellness exam. I put those codes in. And anytime you say that the patient patient is obese, you have to then give them a second code that indicates how obese they are. And this is like via done via the BMI, which everyone will say it's not the best way to say it's the BMI isn't ideal, but we still use it. So anyway, if you're going to call a patient obese, then you have to give them a formal BMI code and say exactly how obese they are. Um, So anyway, those are two diagnoses that I saw all the time, absolutely all the time. Like these top three, four, even five things go hand in hand. Everybody's got high blood pressure. Everybody's cholesterol is a mess. Everybody's got type two diabetes and everybody's overweight. And then the next thing was that um, if you didn't want to call a patient outright type 2 diabetes, because, I mean, you know, beyond like the psyche, like the psychological factor of, oh, my God, now I have type 2 diabetes, like that's a diagnosis that's that might like have implications for a, per- a person's um, health care or uh, health insurance, whether how much they pay or whether or not they're able to get it. So, I mean, we want to we want to make sure that we're doing right by our patients, but going around just labeling everybody type two diabetes, um, that's, that's not good either. So, um, my attending had kind of a middle ground and he would call, um, he would put a formal diagnosis of elevated fasting blood glucose level. So for people who came in and maybe didn't meet diagnoses for, um, uh, outright type two diabetes, which do you guys remember? how, what that number is, what's a, what's a fasting blood sugar, um, uh, in order to qualify as type two diabetic, what number does it start at? It starts at 126. Um, so 126 and above is technically our type two diabetes range. Um, now our pre-diabetes starts at 100. So anything between 100 and 125 is technically in this like pre-diabetes range. And when that would happen, my attending would call that elevated fasting blood glucose levels. So the patient would get that diagnosis instead of formal type 2 diabetes, which in that case was would have been uncalled for anyway. But um, even if they had like 126, 128, I mean, it's kind of within the margin of error. So um, especially if it was just a one-time occurrence, he definitely would just give this elevated fasting blood sugar um, diagnosis instead. And then, you know, we talked a lot about like, look, 
if I had to label this, I would call this prediabetes. Now let's talk about that. So then you could go into that. So anyway, those top five things um, were pretty much what I saw day in and day out on my family medicine rotation. Um, So everything from here on out is just kind of like, oh, I saw a handful of hypothyroidism. That was pretty much next on the list. Um, But people also came in for uh, joint pain, uh, like knee pain, shoulder pain, um, elbow pain, not so much, hip pain a little bit. So uh, joint pain was um, kind of on the second half of why are people coming in to see their friendly uh, family medicine doctor. So joint pain, hypothyroidism. I also had a handful of people who came in wanting to talk about their um, GERD, so their gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, People also coming in to talk about their sleep problems was a big, um, well, not a big, but I saw it, a handful of people. Um, People also came in to talk about their back pain. Uh, And then we also, of course, saw a lot of people with like chronic or not chronic, um, acute coughs. Um, So I guess they would come in to see us instead of going to urgent care. Nah, that's fine. Come in and see your doctor about acute cough. Okay, that's fine. Um, Other than that, uh, I just want to mention, of course, the depression and anxiety are, of course, out there in the population Um, And even if a patient didn't come in to specifically talk about them, it at least was noted on the chart. And a handful of times, I would at least just have to say, how, how is the depression? How is, how is the anxiety? Are these things that you struggle with? Are you taking the medication? Do we need to have you called back in? And let's talk about those things. Because of course, those are super important, right? Mental health is, I think, increasingly um, having a spotlight shown on it. out there in the world. So that's a good thing. Um, so anyway, um, I would, if I saw that on a chart, even if a patient wasn't in to specifically talk about it, I asked how they were doing, if they needed medication refills and remind them that, um, you know, they don't have to go see a counselor if they're not ready to do anything like that. Um, they can come and have it billed through us and we can, um, try to talk with them about, um, some other, uh, medication, mainly stuff, um, if whatever they have now isn't working. So anyway, that kind of rounds out, uh, the things that I saw, um, in my family medicine rotation. So if that sounds up your alley and you totally want to spend 40 hours a week talking about those things, then great. Family medicine might be for you. Um, if those things are, don't sound good to you, then then maybe you shouldn't look for a job in family medicine. Although I will say, even though I don't think I want to do family medicine per se, it was really helpful to get kind of like a just a general smattering of things. I mean, and you, you know, my up to date, my up to date login got so much use because. I would look up anything from anemias, which we're going to talk about here um, in a quick bit, uh, to, like I said, to back pain, to anxiety, to um, kidney problems, to abdominal pain, to sexual disorders, primarily um, erectile dysfunction. So, I mean, family medicine was pretty interesting in that it, it keeps you on your toes because you never really knew what was walking through the door. Um, and so if you, if you're a person who likes a decent amount of variety, family medicine may actually not be a terrible place for you because like I said, you talk about, 
um, women's issues and then turn around and, and talking about birth control. And then all of a sudden you're talking to a guy um, who's type two diabetic and has erectile dysfunction. So there, it was pretty interesting in the fact that it, it really was a wide variety of things that you saw. And yes, we did a lot of referring out to specialists, but it, it at least was an initial uh, interesting first step to take about a whole wide variety of things. So uh, anyway, that was my family medicine rotation. And um, I think uh, we'll leave it there. So let's start talking about <laughs> anemias and how to differentiate them um, on the CBC. All right. So the two anemias that I want to cover today are anemia of chronic disease and iron deficiency anemia. And there's a whole bunch of other anemias, like all those hemolytic anemias um, and even like thalassemias. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about that today. M maybe I'll make an episode later because I'm going to have to study those. But at least in the setting of family medicine, a problem that I kept coming coming into was a patient would come in with a CBC that was a little off. Either their RBCs were down or their H&H &H were down, and I wouldn't know how to evaluate that. Now, as a good PA student, pretty much the only thing I knew that was, was when hemoglobin levels got like below seven, sometimes eight, depending on what source you're looking at. But when hemoglobin levels dropped significantly low enough, that was an indication for um, packed red blood cells, so a, a blood transfusion. But other than that, anything in the middle... And, and I was kind of lost. So I would, I would be looking at these CBCs for these people who would come in to do their like annual Medicare checkups and their hemoglobin would be like 11.1 and they're a man. And I'd be going, well, that's not, I mean, sure, that's, that's lower than we want it, but it's not like seven or eight yet. So like, I can tell you that they don't need a blood transfusion, but anything other than that, I have, I'm not quite sure what to do. And one of the first times I got a lab value like that, my attending looked at me and he was like, well, what do you think is causing it? And, and I was like, I mean, I don't know. I'm just looking at a piece of paper here. And he's like, he's like, that's actually a pretty good answer. What would you want to do to investigate it further? And I was a little bit lost. Um, and so anyway, uh, this is kind of where it's coming from. Like, what do you do with a hemoglobin of, of 11.1? Um, and so, and how do you decide if this is like an acute thing or a little more chronic? And yes, you need to do some further evaluation. Um, but part of the reason why I didn't know where to go from there was because I had completely forgotten what some of the other indices meant. Like what in the hell was transferrin and what in the hell was TIBC and RDW and ferritin? Like I knew that those were all a thing because I kind of paid attention in class when I learned about them 13 months ago, but none of them had stuck with me. So I ended up having to do a little more research on them. And turns out for the boards and like for a lot of the vignettes uh, that I've been coming across during my studying, like they'll give you a TIBC level and you need to, you need to know if that goes with anemia of chronic disease or an iron deficiency anemia. So uh, that's where this that's where this episode is coming from. Um, so before we get into uh, the board stuff for chronic disease versus iron deficiency, let's talk about 
what officially constitutes the definition of anemia. And so this is a hemoglobin level in men of less than 13.0 or 13.5. Kind of depends on the source that you're looking at, but roughly 13 is the hemoglobin level um, for men. It's got to be below that in order to be considered anemic. And in women, um, a little more consensus there that it's at about 12.0. So 13 for men and 12 for women of a hemoglobin. Um, if their hemoglobin is value is less than 13 in men and 12 in women, now we can call them anemic. So in the real world, I would get a lab value and maybe the red blood cells were diminished just a tad, um, but the H&H, the hemoglobin and hematocrit were fine. Um, well, that patient wasn't officially called um, anemic because the hemoglobin was technically okay. And the way that my attending explained that was that you, you basically look at those three numbers and kind of interpret them all in tandem. So for instance, if a patient had a low RBC value and a low H&H, um, then you'd be a little bit more concerned about them and would, would definitely want to make sure that you did some further investigations and not just kind of shrug your shoulder and say, well, we'll check it again in three months. Um, so you kind of look at all those three numbers together. And, and if they all hang together, like if they all hang normal, then, you, you know, then you're, that's obviously normal. Uh, but if they all are hang lower together, that's more concerning than just one or two of those numbers being off. But uh, at any rate, that's a little pearl from the front lines. Um, but in terms of the boards, uh, a hemoglobin less than 13 in men and less than 12 in women is considered anemic. Um, now, let's go over and talk about transferrin, transferrin, total iron binding capacity, TIBC, and ferritin. Um, because these three things we need to know more about because like I said, they give it they give you values on the boards. And one of the reasons why I had no idea to answer any of these heme questions was because I'd completely forgotten what any of those things meant um, and what their values were associated with. So um transferrin in my brain, I think of it as trans the transferrin shuttle bus. Um, and so this is the this is the molecule that shuttles the iron all about all around the body so that it can be used. So this that's why I call it the shuttle bus. So in my head, I have to call it that every single time um, be, until it just becomes second nature. So the transferrin shuttle bus is what binds up the free iron um, and and shuttle and shuttles it around and delivers it to the tissue. Um, and you can even see the it, the prefix trans, right? Like. Tr like like transport kind of a thing. So it's the transport molecule, molecule. Interestingly enough, for reasons that I didn't look up, we don't actually measure the transferrin um, value. Now we can because I've seen it list be listed in vignettes, but like maybe we just don't get it in the real world. Maybe it's too expensive or maybe a lot of labs don't carry it. I'm not quite sure. Um, but what I came across when I was studying was that the TIBC or the total iron binding capacity was actually more frequently what we use as kind of like a surrogate, surrogate measure of the transferrin. So the TIBC is an indirect way to measure transferrin levels. Um, and so transferrin and TIBC 
are going to either both be normal, both be elevated, or both be diminished because one is just an indirect measure of the other. So you're never going to get one that's high and one that's low. The transferrin and the TIBC should, <laughs> from what I gather, always go up or down together. Um, and so that's helpful because uh, what is kind of one less thing to have to memorize. So uh, for me, I think I'm going to look at the TIBC levels. Um, from what I remember from lecture, that was something that we often um, focused on. So uh, so that's transferrin and TIBC. Now, the, la the, the last, last one is this thing called ferritin. And in my head, I call it the ferritin storage closet. Again, something I just have to say in my brain until it becomes second nature. Oh, yeah, ferritin, that's where that's iron storage. But the ferritin storage closet. Um, and I remember that because I think I, I don't think it's the ferret that ferrets something away. I think it's like, there's a saying called like, if you squirrel something away, you like, pack it away and save it for later. So I know that the word isn't squirrel uh, here in medicine. I, it's ferret, kind of ferritin. Um, but anyway, that's that's uh, that's how my brain kind of lily pads around. Ferret, ferritin sounds like ferret. Uh, and a ferret is in the same same uh, like marmot family as a squirrel and squirrels squirrel things away and save them up and store them for later. So the ferritin storage closet, if that helps you. Um, and so this is just, the ferritin is just a protein molecule and all it does is store the iron that is not used to make hemoglobin. So that's, that's what the ferritin does. So it's, it's your iron stores. Now, the last thing that's interesting about ferritin is that yes, it's the iron storage closet, but it also is this thing called an acute phase reactant. And there's a handful of other things that are also categorized as acute phase reactants. Um, but ferritin deserves particular attention here um, because when we talk about the labs, um, it will help you figure out if it should be elevated or decreased based on what disorder you're talking about. So an acute phase reactant is essentially a marker in the body that goes haywire when something acutely is going on, like an infection or inflammation. So these are things that just become elevated in the body um, acutely, and it's like a it's a, a reaction to an acute something. Um, and ferritin is one of those things. And from the readings that I've done, it sounds like that people don't know exactly why that is, but it that's kind of the general thinking is that. Yes, ferritin is the ferritin storage closet for iron, but it also is this thing called an acute phase reactant. And that is significant because in the setting of anemia of chronic disease, which can only occur in the setting of inflammation, um, your the ferritin levels are going to be elevated because ferritin is an acute phase reactant. Now, I know I'm using the word acute in the setting of chronic disease, um, but just go with me on the fact that in chronic disease, you have higher levels of inflammation. And when there's inflammation in the body, these acute phase reactants go out and circulate and prowl the town. Um, uh, CRP, C-reactive protein, is another um, acute phase reactant. Um, so is hepcidin, which uh, I learned all about. And actually, hepcidin is something that wasn't discovered until like 2001. So like we're making 
like medical discoveries all the time here and it's it's super interesting um but anyway, I'm not going to get into hepcidin terribly much right now, but just know that ferritin kind of has two different lives. It's the iron storage closet, but it also is an acute phase reactant, and I've already talked about reasons why that's significant. So ferritin is elevated in anemia of chronic disease, and contrast that with iron deficiency anemia, ferritin is low. And I don't know if that has more to do with the fact that the ferritin is this the acute phase reactant, but I don't think so. I think from what I read that in iron deficiency anemia, the storage closet, the ferritin storage closet actually gets used up first. Um, so that's why the ferritin storage closet is low in iron deficiency anemia. And because ferritin is an acute phase reactant, it's high in anemia of chronic disease because of the inflammation. Um, so that's ferritin. And then going back to the um, TIBC, which I realize I didn't tell you guys about. Um, but the interesting thing about TIBC is that it's, it's made by the liver. And so when iron levels are low, the body makes the transferrin shuttle bus to go out and pick up the iron that was absorbed in the duodenum and go um it wants it it wants it to go out and go pick up the iron because like i said the the body is low um in iron in the anemia um and so the tibc in iron deficiency anemia is actually high because the body's like we don't have we don't have enough um, iron in, in hemoglobin in we don't have enough iron to make the hemoglobin. Um, so you better go out and go like scour some. So it sends out the body, the liver makes transferrin and tells it to go, well, like go let out the shuttle buses because we got to go pick up some iron so that we can make some hemoglobin here. So in iron deficiency anemia, the TIBC, right, which is a surrogate measure for the transferrin, um, is higher. Contrast that with the anemia of chronic disease, and the TIBC in anemia, anemia of chronic disease is actually lower. And the only place that I read anything about that um, is because this this is a response to the high iron stores, right? So the ferritin storage closet is high in anemia of chronic disease. And even though there's there's high storage levels in the um, anemia of chronic disease, the, the levels are inaccessible. And so somehow the body picks up on the fact that it can't get to these high storage of iron levels. And so it says, well, why even bother sending out the shuttle buses there's there's no reason to do it because i can't pick those people up anyway um so i mean again at least this is how it makes sense to a pa student from the hour and a half of studying that i did in order to prepare for this lesson um so so anyway so tibc is low in anemia of chronic disease because the storage closet is high but apparently we can't get to the storage closet so we don't even bother sending out the shuttle buses so we don't send out the transferrin levels so the tibc is low in anemia of chronic disease disease even though 
the storage closet ferritin levels are super high in anemia of chronic disease. Again, contrast that with the iron deficiency anemia, where wherein the storage levels, the ferritin storage closet is the first thing that goes. Um, so that's super depleted, super decreased low ferritin in anemia um, from iron deficiency. And then the TIBC, the surrogate mark marker for the shuttle buses, those are super high because the body's like, well, we got to we gotta go and pick up all the iron uh, from all the absorption sites that we can find it at because we got to start making some hemoglobin here. Um, so that is how we use those two markers to help differentiate between uh, anemia of chronic disease and iron deficiency anemia. So now with that big background, um, let's talk a little bit more specifically um, about the like diagnosis and treatment and some of the maybe a little bit of the path pathophys. So anyway, now that we know how to look at um, a uh, CBC a little bit better and figure out where there is an anemia. Um, let's move on to talking about the classifications of anemia um, and then how to um, diagnose and treat uh, anemia of chronic disease versus iron deficiency anemia. So I realized that I just spent all this time talking about TIBC and ferritin, whether it's elevated or diminished, but I didn't actually give you any of the numbers for what a normal TIBC and normal ferritin are. And I guess I really didn't do that because a lot of the readings that I went through described described how to interpret those values as either increased or reduced. Um, and I, I think all it means is that you're not expected to, I mean, my God, I hope we're not expected to memorize a normal TIBC and a normal ferritin. Um, and even on the Rosh Review that my school uses um, to help us prepare for boards, there's even like a normal lab value um, that you can just like cl click that just exists uh, within the testing framework. So I'm not, I'm probably not going to put these numbers in my head, but just knowing the general trends, like I just spent like 20 minutes talking about, um, should be helpful enough it provided that there is a reference range um, that uh, the boards will have. And I'm almost positive that they do, that the, the actual boards themselves have reference ranges that we can use. And again, the Rosh review that I've been using has one. So I feel like I didn't make that information up that uh, we have reference range ranges um, at our availability. So all that said, just for completeness, Here's the normal values of TIBC and ferritin. So a normal TIBC is 250 to 460. And I just realized I didn't even write the units down. So I don't know how much helpful this is. But again, for completeness sake, normal TIBC is 250 to 460. And a normal ferritin is between 15 and 200 nanograms per milliliter. That NG must stand for nanograms, right? I mean, I didn't just make that up nanograms per milliliter. Um, and I guess the only thing I'll say about the ferritin is that um, a ferritin under 15 um, is actually pretty diagnostic for, I believe it is the anemia, um, uh, iron deficiency anemia, but uh, we'll get to that um, in a quick bit. So anyway, just wanted to complete um, that number for us. But again, I think just knowing um, the general trends will be more helpful. So um, moving on from that, 
So we've decided that our patient is anemic, which means, do you remember the values? If you're, if it's a man, hemoglobin is less than 13.0 slash 13.5. If it's a woman, hemoglobin is less than 12.0. So the patient is anemic. Next up, um, we can look at the MCV because anemias can be classified into microcytic, normocytic, and macrocytic anemias. Um, and based on which one of those we're dealing with will dictate kind of what our differential is. So in order to figure out macrocytic, normocytic, or microcytic, uh, we need to check something called the MCV, which stands for the mean corpuscular volume. So the MCV normal value is 80 to 100 slash kind of 96 I saw elsewhere. But generally speaking, 80 to 100 is a normal MCV. So anything that falls in that range, we're going to call a normocytic anemia, meaning it's totally possible to have a low hemoglobin and then their MCV totally falls within normal range. Um, again, that's normocytic anemia. So anything below 80 is microcytic anemia, anemia, and anything above 100 is considered macrocytic anemia. So let's talk about some of the differentials. If you end up with a microcytic anemia, um, one of the first things you should think about is a late stage iron deficiency anemia. So again, a late stage iron deficiency anemia. And I point that out only because in, in early stage iron deficiency anemia, most likely the patient is actually going to have normocytic values. So the MCV is going to look totally normal. Um, so if you've got a normal MCV, don't automatically think that it couldn't be an iron deficiency something um, uh, issue because it totally could be. It could just be early on. Um, hopefully the boards are a little bit nicer to us and they put, um, iron deficiency anemia in the microcytic category, but you know, stranger things have happened. Also in theory, we're, we'll all be passing the pants and graduating and taking care of patients eventually. So, uh, that's also just good information to know, um, to be a good provider. Um, so late iron deficiency anemia is the number one microcytic um, anemia to think about, but we also have lead poisoning that falls in microcytic anemia, um, thalassemias that fall into microcytic anemia, ca anemia categories, and not to confuse the holy fuck out of us, but early anemia of chronic disease can actually be microcytic anemia. So again, I mean, the MCV is helpful and maybe on the boards, it'll be especially helpful. But like in the real world, you can just get a smattering of all of these things. And so anyway, that's why I spent more time talking about the TIBC and ferritin levels, because that was a little bit more cut and dry. Um, but anyway, according to the boards for studying purposes, microcytic anemia differential includes late iron deficiency anemia, lead poisoning, thalassemias, and early anemia of chronic disease. Um some other buzzwords that we can help to attach to which one of these anemias are we dealing with is this notion of what color are the red blood cells. So red blood cells that look nice and red under the microscope are termed normochromic, right? Chromic as in, I don't know, color things. Um, and then normal as in normals. Um, so normochromic uh, actually goes along with anemia of chronic disease. So if you see that word on the boards, normochromic, meaning the red blood cell has a nice normal red color to it, that's they're probably trying to steer you in the direction of anemia of chronic disease. Contrast that with 
hypochromic, so pale red blood cells, hyperchromic goes along with iron deficiency anemia. So another clue there that to try to figure out which one of these things we're dealing with. Um, so that's that's helpful, again, even even though the microcytic versus normocytic kind of cr- blur some lines there. But just for um, completeness sake, let's talk about the normocytic differential. So normocytic anemia, this is traditionally where anemia of chronic disease sits. So classically, anemia of chronic disease is in the normocytic category, meaning the MCV is between what and what? MCV between 80 and 100 for normocytic anemias. Um, and then, did I already say this? That to just to annoy the ever-living piss out of us, uh, early iron deficiency anemia, again, can present with normocytic anemia. So clear as mud, totally annoying, um, but you have some other tools to kind of help um, decipher those out. Um, and then for macrocytic anemias, there's two main ones here that we need to think about, um, B12 deficiency and folate deficiency, which I don't think I'm going to get terribly much into um, today on this one. So um, so there's our MCV values. And again, the MCV is it's just super helpful to classify what kind of anemia are we looking at. Um, the other thing that's helpful in further classification is the RDW. Um, but I will save that for later because we'll talk about thalassemias, um, and whatnot in a different episode. So there are, that's the, um, MCV talk to figure out microcytic, normocytic, or macrocytic. All right, just a little bit more to go. We're going to talk a little bit about etiology, clinical manifestations, and how do you treat these things, because let's not forget how to fix these anemias. Um, But real quick before we get into that, I came across a buzzword that I I just wanted to throw in here because it's always helpful for us. Um, We just spent a little bit of time talking about hypochromic, normochromic, and turns out there's only really one hyperchromic um, disorder that we should be thinking of, and that is in hereditary spherocytosis. So if you see hyperchromic um, red blood cells, that is pretty much pathognomonic for hereditary spherocytosis. Uh, and then just for completeness, um, a diagno- diagnosis of hereditary spherocytosis is a positive what kind of test? Anybody remember? Because I remembered this word, but I didn't remember what it went with. So the positive osmotic fragility test goes along with hereditary spherocytosis, also goes along with um, hyperchromic red blood cells. So, uh, okay, so there's some buzzwords on that. Now, going back, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the etiology of microcytic anemia. So like meaning how does somebody become anemic of the microcytic kind. Uh, There's three most common ones, um, by far and away iron deficiency. And I read somewhere it was something like more than half. Um, So by far and away, if you have a microcytic anemia, bet your money on the fact that it's an iron deficiency, meaning the patient isn't making enough iron. Um, And so therefore, we don't have enough hemoglobin. Um, But again, we can also um, have either alpha or beta thalassemia. um, And then also again, Uh, anemia of uh, chronic disease in the early stages. So these are the three most common microcytic anemias. 
Um, and then also, uh, uh, just for a little review, there's one more that was on our differential. Let us not forget about lead poisoning. Um, so the issue here is, um, where the issue with microcytic anemia is, is that there's not um, enough iron around. Um, so we, so that leads to decreased heme production, the hemoglobin, the heme part of the hemoglobin. Um, and, um, in the thalassemias, um, it's a decrease in the globin production of the hemoglobin part. Um, but again, not getting into that too much. Um, so, uh, etiology could be, um, chronic, chronic blood loss. So why, why are people iron deficient? Well, um, most commonly it's due to bleeding. So like a chronic blood loss, um, either, um, occultly from like colon cancer, um, or parasites, um, or uh, in women, um, excessive menstruation can absolutely cause iron deficiency anemia. Um, so those are some of the reasons why people don't have enough iron. And um, secondly, you can also just like not intake enough iron um, from the diet. Uh, and this is m more of a problem in um, pregnant gals, um, children who are undergoing uh, rapid growth spurts, um, and infants that are breastfed even. So um, dietary deficiencies of iron um, are are much less to blame for why somebody might be iron deficient, but nonetheless, there they are. Uh, so symptoms, symptoms of iron deficiency anemia. So here's some buzzwords. Um, uh, pica, pica, P-I-C-A. I should totally know how to say that. Pica, pica. Let's call it pica. I, I probably just picked wrong. But anyway, um, P-I-C-A, and that is an appetite um, for wanting to eat things that aren't food. Um, so like clay, um, or mud, um, even chalk I saw somewhere, but like, I'm, I'm told, and I don't know if this is an old wives tale or not, but I'm told that the body recognizes that it, it wants iron and like, think like iron is found in like clay and mud and like soil. So that's a weird thing. But anyway, if you hear somebody randomly eating like all the house plants, um, that's pica, um, and that goes along with iron deficiency anemia. Um, we, they, uh, patients can also have angular chelitis, um, which is that funky, um, like skin issue, um, in the corners of the mouths. Um, and then also nail spooning. And the fancy word for that is, oh my God, I hope I don't blow this. Coil, coil <laughs> It starts with a K, K-O-I-L, coil, coilanclia. Uh, anyway, nail spooning, that's, um, that's the, that's a non-medical term. And that again goes along with iron deficiency anemia. Um, so for review, uh, we talked about how do we diagnose microcytic, uh, or iron deficiency anemia. Um, the absolute best test for figuring out whether or not we have an iron deficiency anemia is actually the ferritin. And do you remember which way I said the ferritin stores were going to be high or low? They're going to be super low because the iron stores are actually used up first in iron deficiency anemia. Um, and in fact, a ferritin of less than 15 is diagnostic for iron deficiency anemia. So check that ferritin. Uh, that's related to iron deficiency anemia, especially if it's under um, 15. Um, uh, also on labs, we'll see an increased RDW, which is important to help differentiate this from the thalassemias. The thalassemias are lower. Um but uh, here on iron deficiency anemia, increased RDWs. Um, what else? And the TIBC. TIBC is going to be elevated because, again, the TIBC is the surrogate marker for a transferrin. 
And the body says, holy shit, we need to go pick up some iron. You better go send out the shuttle buses. So the TIBC shuttle buses go out, try to pick up all the iron. Um, So those are labs. And then management of iron deficiency anemia. I mean, if you don't get this, then you are not paying attention to the English language. Because (laughs) in iron deficiency anemia, all we have to do is replete their iron. Iron. Well, that's great, PAK. How do we do it? Good. I'm glad you asked. You replete it with ferrous sulfate. 325 milligrams orally and so it can totally be taken orally ferrous sulfate is the one i can't imagine that they're going to pimp us that hard um on the boards but nonetheless there it is ferrous sulfate 325 orally um and you want the patient needs to do this on an empty stomach or with vitamin C because vitamin C actually increases the iron absorption. So I suppose if they were going to eat anything, vitamins, glass of orange juice would be maybe okay. Um, but I guess they might hyper absorb it then. So I'm sure somebody who does this in the real world can tell me the real world clinical, um, manifestations of drinking it with a glass of orange juice, but nonetheless, vitamin C increases, increases iron absorption. Um, and then side effects, uh, associated with oral repletion of iron are GI mainly. So like nausea, vomiting, I remember constipation was a big one, um, when I was in class. So, um, so generally speaking, you want to start with a low dose, um, and then gradually increase it. Um, and then within about a week, you should actually see an improvement in the reticulites, uh, reticulocyte counts. Um, so that is how we treat iron deficiency anemia. And then let's turn the page. And how do we treat anemia of chronic disease? Well, because it's, because it's due to chronic disease things, I mean, management is to treat the underlying. So I really don't find much value in talking more about it. Um, but I just want to hit some high points on like, what is even anemia of chronic disease? Because this was a weird thing, because it's kind of a catch all um, diagnosis. And some of the main things that I found, I think that'll be helpful for our boards is that um, is that anemia of chronic disease only occurs in chronic inflammatory conditions. So essentially, in order for their anemia of chronic disease to even happen, there needs to be a source of inflammation. So you essentially need to ask yourself, well, what are things that cause inflammation? Well, a big one is rheumatologic conditions. And so one of the favorites I found in studying was um, giving a vignette that tells a story of a patient who has an uh, autoimmune condition. Uh, some some favorites are RA and lupus. Um, so these, these room conditions are associated with a lot of inflammation. And so, it, again, you know, they these vignettes really try to give you clues. They really do. They're annoying as hell because they're like 18 sentences long, but there's some clues. Um, and so if you know that anemia of chronic disease only happens in patients who have a chronic source of inflammation, um, that can help you figure out that, oh, I think they're trying to paint a picture of somebody with anemia of chronic disease. So um, autoimmune conditions, RA lupus are the darlings um, on the board's questions. But you can also, uh, of course, get this from malignancies. Cancers are very, very um, uh, inflammatory. Um, And then infections as well, but that's a little less on the differential. Now, in the real world, uh, you can see these anemia of chronic diseases go along with um, people who have chronic kidney disease. And a big one was actually type 2 diabetics. Uh, So I haven't looked into that terribly much uh, more for why, but um, it's definitely a thing. Um, So your again, your CKD people and your type 2 diabetics um, could also 
be considered in this. Maybe they've got anemia of chronic disease. I know that I saw it a lot um, on my type two diabetics in the real world, um, but again, just didn't look just didn't look into it too much. Um, so uh, again, um, on labs for anemia of chronic disease, we're going to see an increased ferritin because it is an acute phase reactant, um, and. Uh, let's see what else. Um, decreased hemoglobin. We already talked about that. Oh, this probably won't be on the boards, but the really interesting thing, like why does ferritin even go up? Um, like why is that even a thing, um, as an acute phase reactant? And the reason that I found what the purpose of an increased ferritin is because ferritin sequesters iron, like, I mean, again, it's the storage closet, right? So like it packs it into the storage closet. Um, but in the setting of an infection, like like viruses and bacteria use um, use iron to like keep their own selves going. Um, so if we, excuse me, just bacteria, not viruses. Um, so bacteria use iron um, to help themselves grow. So the body's super smart and it's like, well, if the bacteria need the iron to grow, I'm going to steal all this iron here away from them and pack it into the ferritin closet. So literally, this is the pathophys behind why um, ferritin at, it acts as an acute phase reactant in the setting of infection, at least, because it's trying to steal the iron um, away from the bacteria so that the bacteria can't use it, which is freaking crazy. The body is so freaking smart. Um, so uh, increased ferritin um, in anemia of chronic disease um, and low TIBC because the iron stores are so high, um, but we, I've already said this, but um, the body knows that it can't go out and use those iron stores, so it doesn't even send out the TIBC um, to go pick it up. So, uh, and then the, another buzzword, just as review, just as review, the anemia of chronic disease is going to be normochromic, normocytic anemia. Um, and again, uh, there's a whole different things that can cause anemia of chronic disease. So treatment is to treat the underlying, uh, and that, my friends, I think is it. So we did. Anemias, yay! So last little pearl on anemia of chronic disease because Smarty Pants, uh, the review website, just reminded me um, that we need to talk more about hepcidin, H-E-P-C-I-D-I-N, hepcidin. Uh, and the only reason I bring it up is because it is has largely and kind of newly been implicated in the pathogenesis of anemia of chronic disease. And Wikipedia tells me that it was like discovered in 2000, the year 2000. So, I mean, a pretty new discovery in terms of medicine. And all it, it is, it's a protein. And just like ferritin, it is also an acute phase reactant. And so it is released in the setting of, um, uh, infection and its whole purpose through really nerdy ways that thankfully Khan Academy told me all about. So it's totally a thing. It's out there if you're interested, but, um, essentially high levels of hepcidin will decrease iron availability. Again, um, knowing that microbes use iron in order to help themselves grow and become stronger. Um, 
we would not we would want to find a way to decrease iron levels in the body in the setting of um, infection. So hepcidin is released um, from the liver, and that's actually where the name came from. Hep, as in we figured out that it came from the liver, and then cidin um, because it actually thought to have bacterial cidal characteristics, so it, like actively kills microbes, which is crazy. Um, uh, and uh, presumably through the reduction of um, iron availability. So uh, in low, um, excuse me, in high states of infection, hepcidin is released by the liver. And through magical ways that Khan Academy can tell you all about, decreases the availability, the availability of iron. Interestingly enough, when there are low levels of hepcidin going on, we have too much iron that's floating around in the body, which some of us call, what disorder am I talking about? Hemochromatosis. So hepcidin is this a really interesting uh, protein molecule, and it is increasingly recognized as like the key regulator of iron absorption in the body. So all that is to say is that hepcidin is a buzzword for anemia of chronic disease because we're pretty much pointing our fingers at it um, as far as like the etiology of it. So um, the anemia uh, in anemia of chronic disease comes about because there's too much, there are um, high levels of hepcidin in the body that are decreasing the amount of iron availability. Um, therefore, the body can't make hemoglobin. So... Hepcidin goes with anemia of chronic disease. Okay, now we really did it. Thanks for hanging in there in these last couple minutes. Um, and that's all I've got for today on family medicine and some of the pretty um, nitty gritty details of the basic anemias. Um, so let's call it there. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Uh, bye.